Before I get started, I would like to issue this disclaimer. I am not a mental health professional. I am an individual who is passionate about mental health and topics related to mental health. Research has been done on these topics and I am sharing my own personal experience. All conversation and information exchange are intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Any information shared should not be used as medical advice or to self-diagnose. If you believe you are experiencing an emergency, please talk to your primary physician or call 911. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Mind If We Chat. I'm your host, Sarah. And to continue talking about subjects of mental health, as we are in May and it's Mental Health Awareness Month, today I have Erin joining me. She's a former guest. Hello, Erin. Hi, so Uh, glad to be back. Well, I'm very happy to have you. Last time we were talking about pandemic and we're kind of switching gears and talking about what you have uh, been doing as your job, correct? Like um, doing some intake and you work with patients with eating disorders, correct? That's right. So our facility eating recovery center, we work with all ages. Um, I, I guess I should say eight till however old you are. Um, we offer three different levels of care for treatment for eating disorders. And essentially my job is, you know, I'm the front, the first person you talk to when you're seeking treatment, whether that's a patient seeking eating disorder treatment or a family member or parent. Um, so I'm, you know, the first person you touch base with, I do an essential intake and then make an idea of like what my recommendation may be or what I think the family should anticipate. Um, And I get them scheduled and set up to do their more detailed clinical assessment. And then from that point on, they're in with the rest of the team, figuring out which level of care they need, when they're admitting, all of that. But yeah, we, we treat a myriad of eating disorders, even the ones that aren't in the DSM. And then we also do have a mood and anxiety program in same levels of care, all of that as well. So we primarily focus on eating disorders, but we do offer mood and anxiety. Okay. So when I thought about doing this topic, I thought about you. Um, Before we do get into the content of this episode, though, I do want to give a warning. Some of the things we may talk about may trigger some, um, some information that's given may, you know, sit deep with you. So I just want to give that warning. Um, please don't feel pressure to listen. You know, I know you support, uh, but if there's something that you may feel may trigger you take a break, maybe come back. If you skip this episode, you know, we're all about just raising awareness. That's the point of the episode. And, you know, really what I want to make this month of May about. So, all right, Erin, I just wanted to give that to our listeners. And I just wanted to let you know, thank you for all the work you do. Um, very excited that I get to talk with you today. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's it's interesting um, when I tell people what I do. First of all, they're very confused, uh, right? Like we work remote and you're working with eating disorders, but you never see the person. A lot of people have this misperception that you need to see someone, right, physically in person in order to assess or address an eating disorder, which makes sense, right? Because you would think with eating disorders, there would be physical appearances that you would want to notice, right? Weight loss or being very, very skinny, Um, but not all eating disorders play the same. 
Um, and now we're seeing much more comorbidity. Comorbidity means multiple diagnoses um, that can affect each other. So we're seeing more um, people with disordered eating patterns that might not necessarily meet a DSM diagnosis, but that is still something that is of concern to us. So when I said earlier that we have that mood and anxiety program as well, we do, when we do our assessments, we're looking at like what the patient might need more. So if the patient has OCD and that OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, is causing them to have ritualistic behaviors directly tied to food, where they might be restricting for some reason or their rituals aren't completed, we see the eating disorder kind of emerge, but that's not primary. The OCD is what's fueling the disordered eating, right? So then we would assess and we would say, well, we want to treat the disordered eating, obviously, but the OCD is what's primary. And so then that would be where a patient would go to our mood and anxiety programs and they would still get that eating disorder support. And then in that same breath, vice versa right? So if eating disorder is primary, but you also have anxiety or depression or bipolar, whatever, will, you know, they affect each other, right? The eating disorder affects the mood disorder and vice versa. Again, we assess to see if the eating disorder is primary, and then you would go into an eating disorder program with us, and we could still support the mood component of that as well. Okay. Are there a lot of programs out there like that? So there's actually becoming more for sure. Um, Eating disorders, I think, are becoming more prevalent. People are learning more about them. And this is even in the medical profession. Like I've actually talked to physicians and doctors who have very minimal knowledge of eating disorders, which seems strange, right? Because there are so many medical complications when someone does have an eating disorder. So you would think that, you know, in medical school, you would learn about that. But a lot of times I talk to providers and they're like, I have no idea. Like, and I'm like, oh, well, let me fill you in. But there are more centers in the United States. There are a few abroad that do more intense or even end of life care. Um, So there are obviously eating disorders, anorexia being the main that is severe with the mortality rate. Somebody who couldn't fight and beat their eating disorder may go to a European facility to essentially, it's like hospice, right? It was eating disorder support, but you're not making it. And the patients typically are aware of that. And even in talking about that right now, I'm glad that you brought that kind of trigger warning because it is, Mm -hmm. it is eating disorders are serious and they take lives, lots of them yearly. Um, They have one of the highest mortality rates of mental illness disorders uh, over depression, over opioid use, over, you know, a a bunch of different things. Um, And typically when people do succumb to the eating disorder, it reminds me or in a way to be more colloquial with your audience is, you know, if someone has AIDS, they don't die from AIDS, right? They die from pneumonia or a complication and their immunity is so low, something else takes them out. And that would be the official death diagnosis. So the same with eating disorders is that's usually a complication of the eating disorder. So we do see heart failure is one of a, a big one, right? Your organs shutting down, not getting the nutrients you need, right? Your body's not able to sustain. And so then on, on the death certificate, it might say heart attack. I've seen this with 16 year old anorexic patients. Oh. 
um, where that is the, the, the cause or claim of death. But we know, right, as a full picture, that it was the eating disorder that ultimately took that child's life. Um, so it's, it's definitely something that I'm excited to educate people on because I think a lot of us, even myself included, have noticed disordered eating patterns in my life. Mm-hmm. And some things I just never knew, like, oh, wow, maybe I do have like some aversions or, you know, there's a disorder called ARFID, A-R-F-I-D, and it's avoidant food restricted intake disorder. We see that a lot with uh, kiddos on the spectrum or people on the spectrum. Um, it's a sensory, it's a sensory thing. So you don't like textures or scents or smells, or you have fears of certain foods. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like always have said in my life, like I can't have yogurt without granola because it's a texture the thing. Texture, you yeah. know? So, I'm yeah. like, so when I started getting working with eating disorders, I was like, oh my God, maybe I have ARFET. <laughs> I was like trying to like self-diagnose. And then I'm like, wait, no, I, di- I don't. I just have like, I'm picky, right? Or I need certain things. But that is kind of what ARFED looks like. It looks, it can start that way, especially in young kids is that I talk to parents all the time. Is like what started out as picky eating mm-hmm. and now it's full restriction. They'll only eat these three foods. Well, as we know, for a child, that's failure to to thrive. And you're only eating chicken nuggets, mashed potatoes and corn. Well, then they're not getting the full nutrients they need in order to grow. So we do see that uh, again, like I mentioned on the spectrum disorder side of things and OCD sort of side of things, we see behaviors like that, um, where they're kind of tied together. We don't know what's the chicken or the egg, right? Is it is spectrum disorder or the OCD that's causing the eating disorder? Or is it the eating disorder that is exasperated by the mood disorder? So that's just loose to kind of get into how detailed eating disorders are and how many of them there are and how many people are affected. Um, according to the National Eating Disorder Association, 30 million people a year deal with eating disorders disorder wow. eating habits, um, and live with eating disorders, uh, in also, and that's, uh, yeah, national association of anorexia and nervosa and associated disorders. That's their claim from 2019. Um, but I think that would probably be on average or what I would expect. Um, we have 30 locations in the United States. All of our locations are always, you know what I mean? Operational. We have patients. People are actively struggling with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that most people know that because 30 million people, right? Sounds like a big number. But why would you know that if you've never, you know, known someone with an eating disorder or if you've never been affected by it? You know, it's, it's kind of like cancer, right? Like if you've never had someone in your family in your life, why would you know a lot about it? And right. so I'm excited to kind of tell you and and your audience a little bit more about how, you know, how severe and persistent eating disorders can be. Yeah. And as you talk like about like patterns, I definitely notice in myself patterns of when my anxiety is high, I tend to eat a lot more when I'm very stressed out. My anxiety is high. I definitely binge eat, like eat to the point. I know I'm not hungry, you know, but I'm just like, I need comfort. Like I need, and I notice those yep. patterns in myself. Like I just need to eat to feel good. And it's a lot of sweets. It's definitely mm-hmm. just a lot of sweets just to, just to feel good again. But I wanted to talk to you. What, 
what are the types of eating disorders? I know you already mentioned a few, but um, can you give us like some of the major types of eating disorders? Yeah. So the three big players that are recognized by the DSM are anorexia, which is just severe and persistent restriction. That's a lot more to do and rooted in body image and diet culture, yo-yo dieting. We see people kind of become anorexic on accident, honestly, right? Where they're trying a new fad and then they start restricting and then they feel good about that or they see the results and then it, you know, becomes maladaptive. It's no longer a diet. Now it's a disorder. Then we also have bulimia nervosa, which I think many people know that again, colloquially is like making yourself throw up. Um, so that's the binge purge cycle with bulimia. There can also be restriction there as well. So when we assess for eating disorders, we really look at the severity of the purge and if there's, it's coupled with restriction. So you can have bulimia and you're not actually binging, you're restricting. And then when you have a regular meal, and I, by regular, I mean, you just had a sandwich and some chips, right? Which is a caloric intake of what you would anticipate for your lunch. But in that sense, you're then eating just that meal and then purging it. So then really you're, you're, you're just basically restricting, right? Because even if you are eating or allowing yourself a meal or two, you're going directly to the restroom after that. And you're bringing that meal up. Or we also look at over-exercise can be a way or laxative abuse, uh, diuretics like water pills. You know, there's some purging isn't always throwing up. I think that that's something that Uh, your audience and any listener should know is that when we say purge, it doesn't necessarily have to mean, you know, vomiting. It can, you could be, you could be purging by eating a thousand calories a day, but you're working out for four hours. That four hours of exercise, right, is obviously aggressive compared to your caloric intake that would be considered purging. And then more recently, binge eating disorder has been introduced to the DSM as an active eating disorder diagnosis. And binge eating is similar to bulimia without the purge cycle. Um, And binge eating is that compulsive overeating, not recognizing hunger cues um, and full cues. So sometimes as you just kind of said yourself that even though I'm not, I know I'm not hungry, I'm still eating. That's what we're looking for when we're making that diagnosis, right? You know that you're full, you're full, right? Or you've, you've eaten enough, you feel good, but you're not stopping and it doesn't seem to bother you. And it also might feel shameful in the moment. You might have guilt, even though you're, you know, you're eating in the box of Oreos, you feel guilty. And then mm-hmm. after, after you've had a binge cycle, I've talked to many patients who will do like a nighttime binge, which is also binge eating is different than nighttime sleep eating. Those are two different things. Sleep eating is actually a sleep disorder, not an eating disorder, um, although they coincide. But if you're binging all night, right? I woke up at one in the morning and I ate two things of ice cream and Oreos and a burger. And then I woke up the next day and remembered what I did in my, you know, kind of sleep binge state. And I feel guilt, shame. I'm hiding my behaviors. I'm, you know, stopping for fast food before I arrive home for dinner with my family. That's what we're looking at in terms of symptomology. 
okay. to make an accurate diagnosis. Now, while those three, anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating are in the DSM and are, you know, treatable, there are other disorders that we will treat as well. Some insurance gets a little finicky about it. So we might put, you know, a more higher diagnosis on there in order for coverage, honestly, but okay. orthorexia is, a, I would say the best way to describe orthorexia is a, like more of a sports induced eating disorder. That really is where someone is hyper-focused on health and wellness and exercise and, you know, all of those things, but it's, it's negative, right? The results are negative. You're either underweight um, or, you know, you, we see things like you're not getting your period anymore. Your blood pressure is really high or low, depending. Um, so we're looking for the potassium. Those are the things we're looking for in terms of medical labs for orthorexia. But that's when you would see someone who maybe is like, oh, I ran 22 miles today. But they really meant they really did. Right. They really mm -hmm. spent six hours of their day running. Right. So that is, again, just with any disorder, any diagnosis, that's what we're looking for is like, when does that line cross where it's interfering with your functioning? Right. Because okay. if you're working out for six hours of your day, well, are you able to do your job? Right. Are you able to be present as a mother or father or parent or sister or brother? You know, you probably not because you're spending six hours running like that's it's 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 affecting you right and then there's also osfed which is otherwise specified feeding eating disorder and that can be a kind of a combination so that's when we're seeing someone that maybe restricts they also binge they also purge and their purging can look like vomiting it can look like laxative use it can look like over exercise um and there's, you know, maybe some other medical complications in there where we're, we can't really say this is full-blown anorexia, right? Or we can't really say this is full-blown bulimia. Um, that's when we might make an OSFED diagnosis. And then, as I mentioned earlier, ARFED is the other disorder that um, most providers will work with and accept because they typically are tied into a sensory disorder, cognitive, cognitive delay disorder, or like I mentioned before, the spectrum disorder of autism, we no longer typically use the word autism in the field anymore. Mm -hmm. It is ASD, autism spectrum disorder, because everyone kind of falls somewhere in between the spectrum. You can be very high functioning with very minimal symptomology, or you can be very severe. Um, and so when we see that along with obsessive compulsive disorder, because of the ritualistic behaviors, the rigidity around thought patterns, daily schedules, we can see, as I mentioned before, you know, uh, disordered eating with that. Um, where again, most providers in the United States anyways, are willing to treat all of everything I've just talked about, mm -hmm. but most providers are really versed in anorexia, bulimia, and binge, and are able to bill that for insurance. Okay. As things shift and change, hopefully more insurance companies and also doctors will be maybe more inclined to take a patient that has, you know, one of those kind of one-off diagnosis where it's OSFED, right? It's a multiple symptomology uh, where you're not really slapping an official diagnosis on someone. You're looking at the full picture. Um, and those people need treatment just like anyone else. So it's unfortunate when insurance is the barrier. Um, right. so, ho so hopefully as you know, things move forward in the world and people learn more about eating disorders. I hope 
my hope is that more traditional hospitals, outpatient providers and insurance get on board as well, the same way they would cover, you know, anything they cover your your gyno appointment once a year, they cover all these things, you know, why wouldn't you cover for someone who's struggling with disordered eating, um, coupled with another disorder as well, like autism or, or OCD. So, you know, we're, we're, we're looking, we're looking to that now. And I think it's important for any listeners to know, you know, when you're looking for insurance coverage, really digging into what the mental health piece of that coverage looks like. Yeah. Um, that's when I run into talking with families where it, it's really sad. They didn't know, right? They didn't right. know their kid was sick. They have just a regular insurance policy through Blue Cross Blue Shield and the mental health coverage like on that isn't that great because they didn't really think they would meet it, you know, or they didn't want to add that in there when they were shopping on the marketplace or when they were, you know, getting their insurance through their job. And then that's really disheartening, right? For the family and for me as a professional to say like, oh yeah, your kid needs us, but your coverage isn't willing to cover. And out of pocket eating disorder treatment is really expensive. A residential stay with no insurance coverage at any of our facilities is probably around $50,000 for 30 to 45 day stay. I don't know a lot of families, even really well off families, that just have $50,000 just laying around for no reason. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So it's like, when you tell someone that it's like, that's the hardest part is like, oh my God, you know, like it's not even something you could do right out of pocket. And then the family has to find other resources or build their own team. Um, you know, and that's finding an outpatient therapist who specializes in eating disorders. That's finding an outpatient dietitian. That's finding an outpatient family-based therapist. Family-based therapy is one of the main ways, especially with adolescents that we treat eating disorders so that everyone in the family is essentially getting care, mm-hmm. even though mom and dad don't have an eating disorder or sister or brother don't, everyone needs to be involved because supporting that kiddo when they come home from a residential or when they come back from treatment, the whole family needs to know what to do, how to support them. So family-based therapy really loops that in and really gives the family the aftercare and the knowledge that they may not no, right? Why right. would an average parent know about eating disorders or the signs of symptoms to look for? You know, it's like that, those are the things when I talk to parents, it's like, I had no idea. And I'm, you know, on the phone, I'm thinking in my head, well, how could you not? Your child is five, six and 83 pounds. Like, how do you not, like, just picturing that, right? Mm-hmm. In my head, that feels very low. And how did you not? But it's, again, it, you're, with your child or you're with your partner, or you're with the person every day, you maybe don't notice the, the signs and symptoms. You don't recognize the severity mm-hmm. of weight loss because why would you, right. when you see that person every single day, it's like when you see someone after three months, you can tell, Oh, you dyed your hair. Oh, you lost five, gained five. But you see someone every day, maybe you're not recognizing it. And eating disorders are really sneaky and they like to be hidden. And so mm-hmm. patients with eating disorders are very good at hiding symptomology, being very secretive with anorexia and binging 
in particular, it's obviously a little harder to go unnoticed if you're purging, whether that's going to the bathroom directly after a meal, right? Someone might recognize that. Or if you're going for like a three mile run after dinner, you know, some of those things, it's easier to recognize like, huh, that's, that's weird. That was, you know, why, why is my kid doing that? Or why is my partner doing that? But when it's restriction, you don't really know. Right. Or when it's binging, you don't really know. Cause if someone's binging and you're asleep, well, you wouldn't know your partner is doing that, or you wouldn't know your child was doing that in the middle of the night or, you know, coming home from school, stopping at McDonald's, like you just wouldn't know. So I get it. But I think more and more, as I mentioned, like we just need more education. Mm -hmm. Um, It should be talked about. I don't remember when, you know, I was in sixth grade when we started learning about, you know, the body and periods and like, you know, sex and those kind of things. I don't, I think it would have been phenomenal to know about eating disorders and learning about them before, you know, cause I feel like that's the age 11 or 12, you know, somewhere around there is when you start becoming aware of your body and what you look mm-hmm. like and how others perceive you. And so literature for kids and for parents around that age, I think just would be helpful. Even a pamphlet, like signs to look out for. Well, and if you Mm -hmm. never see them, then that's great. But if you do, then you can, if kids, especially children experiencing eating disorders, if they are treated at a young enough age, we see full remission. Like where that, that's not a part of their life anymore, right? They, they had it for a while and now they're, they've recovered, they've moved on, but if it maintains itself and it's secrecy and it's, you know, years now that someone's been dealing with an eating disorder, it mirrors much so more so an addiction, right? So it's, and it's something where, you know, if you're a recovering addict, you say, you know, I'm, I'm in recovery for the rest of your life, right? I'm always going to be an alcoholic, or I'm always going to be a substance abuse user. Same thing with eating disorders. It's kind of like, I'm always going to have it, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm healed and I'm in recovery. There's always that chance of relapse. If someone has had an eating disorder for a longer period of time where they've maybe been in and out of treatment or they've had a few good years and then bad years, it looks like that. Um, and I think that's good for people to know too, that eating disorders, they do, they remind me a lot of addiction disorders because um, it, it's just really completely out of the patient's control. Right. You know, it's like, it's not me, it's the eating disorder or, you know, how patients always say it's not me, it's it's the booze. You know, it's a very similar that patients don't feel they're in control of their bodies or their actions. The eating disorder is in control of their bodies, their actions. Mm-hmm. So I think you, you do, you see a lot of, uh, a lot of relapse. That's why in my field, we very rarely say like, I've had people call and say, what's your success rate? And I always tell them like, there's no such thing, right? Like, first of all, we're talking about mental illness. So mm-hmm. that that's going to ebb and flow, but also it, we don't look at relapse as a negative in our treatment centers, we, that's part of recovery. It's part of it. It's not a negative. So we're not saying, oh, well, Susan from wherever came to residential with us, she left and now she's back. That's bad. Right. So we don't knock that as a success rate. We're not telling someone we're 80, 87%. We're everyone's great. No, we have the point of our treatment is to help people live their full lives again where the eating disorder isn't in control, right? Where they're not 
unwell, medically unstable, right? Where they can have a relationship with food and their bodies and themselves and their families and their loved ones that is filling and, you know, feels good and is healthy, not maladaptive and disruptive and dangerous, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's where we kind of look at it from that side. Yeah. So from your experience, Erin, and I want to ask, how long have you been doing the intake for? I've been doing intake with eating disorder for two years now. Okay. So, so with, within the two years, how many, um, about just roughly, I'm not asking for like an estimate or, I mean, I'm not asking for exact numbers, just kind of an estimate. How many people are you seeing with these different disorders like binging or anorexia or bulimia? Yeah. So I'll tell you, I can give you an probably exact number. Uh, we average taking about 500 calls a day. I would say that's average. 500 calls a day from people seeking eating disorder treatment as primary. Um, and then also, you know, some of those calls are people looking for our mood program as well. Um, but to give your listeners an idea, if that's 500 calls a day, we are never closed. We're open 365. We are scheduling assessments and getting patients into care every day of the week. So me, I work Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. And on average, for me personally, I'm averaging somewhere between 130 to 200 calls a week, helping people get treatment for eating disorders, whether that's a parent calling for a child or whether that's a patient calling for themselves. Um, so you could, your, your listeners can do the math, right? 500 calls a day, seven days a week, however many weeks in a year, right? Like it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. The number is high. And there's other treatment centers out there that aren't affiliated with us that do eating disorder. There's the Emily program. They have locations across the United States. There's center for discovery. They also have multiple locations across the United States. So, um, I think there's also Elsana. So there's a lot of programs, Montanito, just to name a few, right? So I named four outside of us. We're all operating at full capacity right now. Everybody has wait lists. Everybody's patients need eating disorder treatment. So if our program is taking that many calls and Center for Discovery is taking that many calls and Elsana and Montanito are taking that many calls, I mean, it's terrifying the numbers are, are staggering. Right. Right. And then, um, I wanted to ask when you're getting like these calls, what are you hearing? A lot of people are seeking treatment for, like, I know like binge eating anorexia, but is it like having a lot of body image issues? Is it, um, cause I know social media obviously amplifies that. Right. Right. Like right. I've been on Instagram and as much as I enjoy it, sometimes I'm just like, this is a lot because you see mm -hmm. people taking certain pictures and it just becomes really overwhelming. And then I start, I have in the past, I've looked at myself like, Oh, I'm not losing weight fast. Like I want to, cause I do follow people on YouTube right. who are like weight loss people. And I see them and I'm like, well, I'm not losing weight like that. I'm not losing a pound a week. What am I doing wrong? And then that makes me feel bad, you know? So is it a lot of like social media playing parts and body image and things like that? I think I could say fairly with adolescence. I think it, we might see more of that where that's maybe the trigger or maybe that's where the eating disorder was birthed from um, culture, society, social media, uh, body images of celebrities and stars and influencers that aren't realistic, uh, that are also fake. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think it, 
and that could be an entire other conversation for sure about how people portray themselves on social media and how they should tell the truth. I think that would really help a lot more kiddos that are looking to these, you know, big mega superstars. If Kim Kardashian just was honest and said, you know, my butt is fake. I've had my nose done. These are fillers. I have Botox and I'm covered in makeup. Right. I think if kids heard that from her mouth, they would be like, okay, so I can look like her, but I have to save up for it. Right. I have to pay for that. That's a surgery. You know, I could do that. Like living in reality, I think is what we're missing a lot when it, in terms of eating disorders as that patients see these unattainable, unrealistic goals that are mm-hmm. not, there's no way to get to the Kim Kardashian without a doctor, you know, like right. there's, you're never going to do enough squats. You're never going to wear the waist cincher enough. You're never going to be vegan enough as she is, you, you know, like that's, that's what I see a lot of is it, it when people are calling and it's body image related, not to put it all on Kim Kardashian, she's, you know, a grown woman and, and, and smart business person and all of that. I'm not knocking her. I just, and there's other celebrities that I think could do better as well. But when I talk to parents, right. When it is the 13 year old girl, yeah, it's maybe some bullying, right. She's a little heavier than other people. And then she started restricting or she's on social media a lot. She wants to look like X, Y, and Z. You do see that, but I would say on average, it's less, I've, I've noticed in two years, it's really less about body image and more about control. And that mm-hmm. might be the pandemic, right? That right. might be people really reacting to feeling really out of control for the last two years. I mean, things are starting to get better, but, you know, heaven forbid we slip right back in, you know, to the beginning of a quarantine again or a lockdown again. You know, I think that there's a lot of lost control and eating in particular is something that everyone can control, right? You can control what you eat, how little, how much, when, what is it, what, you know, where'd you buy it from? That gives people a sense of comfort. And I think the disordered patterns start to arrive and then people realize like, ooh, maybe I need to call someone because I have lost 20 pounds in a month. That's weird. You know, like people don't, even people who are in it, when I talk to adult patients, it's hard for them to describe how they got where they are to call us now. You know, it's like, I don't remember the moment that I decided I was only going to have salads, right? Or I don't remember the moment where I said I was only going to have one meal a day. Like it, it just, it, it seems to me that it sneaks up on people, on, on adolescents and adults. It's like this kind of creeping thing that's happening. And then you're like, oh, wow. Okay. Now I need help. You know, it's like almost like you didn't know to get help before because you didn't really recognize it. It's like these small little two millimeter shifts, right. Of behaviors and patterns. And then you get to a point where, yeah, then all of a sudden you are calling me asking to come to our program and you don't, you don't know how you went from 220 pounds to 97 mm-hmm. in six months. Right. Cause that's to me, I'm like, Holy moly. Like if that happened to me, I feel like I would recognize that if I lost such a large amount in such a short time, but it's really interesting when you talk to these patients and clients that they don't, they really don't. They, and, and when they do, then it's like, Oh, it's like getting slapped in the face. Right. Like, Oh yeah, something's up. Something's wrong. 
And that's with binge eating or anorexia, right? You could right. fully restrict to the point where you're severely underweight and you're going to recognize that, or you're binging and you're noticing that it's impacting, you know, more so with binge eating, it's impacting your overall feeling of yourself. And because of the shame cycle with binging, you know, it's like mm-hmm. this, high, high, high. And then it's, I'm the worst. And how could I, and why did I eat that much? And God, I feel so full. I feel sick. And oh, I'm so embarrassing. And now I'm not going to fit into that dress this weekend. It's a lot of self-loathing after the binge, which almost might be more impactful for a, a client or patient who's dealing with that than someone who's dealing with anorexia. Um, because anorexia lives more in a reward cycle, right? Patients with anorexia, they want to see the numbers go down. And when they do, they feel rewarded and they are praising themselves. Binge eating is not so, so clear like that. So yeah, I would say overall, everyone from all walks of life, you know, I think that's also what is interesting is that eating disorders are non-discriminatory. You know, I've right. talked to doctors, like PhD doctors that are brain surgeons that have an eating disorder. And you're thinking in your head, like, how did that happen to you? <laughs> you won, you're a doctor, right? You're a professional, you're this, and you're saving lives. How could it? Nope, doesn't matter. And I've also talked to people on homeless on the street. How did I get an eating disorder? You know, so it, it really, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your age, your race, your gender, your color, how you identify, who you are, where you came from. I think it really, it'll get you if it gets you, um, right. which again is why it's so important for people to know more about these disorders. So you could check in with yourself, you know, like, oh, maybe I am doing something. Don't go and diagnose yourself online and look, cause there's a lot of symptomology. And just because you had three donuts doesn't mean you have been binge eating disorder, right. Or just because you missed lunch and dinner, cause you were running around the kids, like you're not anorexic. Okay. So you have to really look and check in with yourself. And that would be a good time to maybe reach out to an outpatient therapist for some guidance. If you're noticing, you know, disordered patterns around food or feelings around food. That's always what I tell people is like, how do you feel when you eat? Because when I eat, I always feel really good. You know, I'm always like sitting down for a meal for me. It's, it's a good time. I, I'm happy. I'm excited to eat this, whatever it is. It's like, it's a good feeling. If you're having a lot of negative feelings, anxiety, you're sweating, your palms are getting wet, you know, you're kind of dreading it or, or you're like way too excited or you're focusing everything around food, right? So that's where you kind of got to know, like, what is that? look like for you and how is that impacting you and those around you? And I I always ask patients too, like, what does your partners say? Or what does your mom or dad or family, friends, coworkers, what are they saying when you guys go to lunch or what are they noticing? You know, because sometimes that's a really good way to get a patient to kind of take the the blinders off a little bit and say, oh yeah, I guess, you know, they do, they do. My coworkers tell me I'm, I look really skinny or my coworkers do say it's weird that I only have, you know, one banana or like, you know, those things. And it's like, okay, that's your own self-realization in that moment when you could say, okay, yeah, now I see there, I can see it, you know, but I'd like to do that. So if anyone listening, you know, is, is thinking that maybe they are struggling, I think, yeah, recognizing what you're seeing around you and people are saying and, you know, 
what that looks like. If anyone's ever made mention of it, whether you're eating too much, or not eating enough, or you have weird behaviors around food. Um, I think taking in, and I, I take everything with a grain of salt, but I think, yeah, if you have 10 people in your life that are concerned, there probably is reason for concern. Right. Right. And I wanted to get into some of um, how are these disorders treated? Because they're, they're obviously different symptoms and things like that. So they're assessed differently. But how are they treated? So if you could if you could talk to me about like the individual ones, that would be good. Because I know that I watched um, this show called it's a newer show on Hulu um, in P- the girl from Plainview. Oh yeah. I'm watching that too. Oh God. She has an eating disorder too. She, I would say probably, and again, I'm armchair therapisting this, but I would say orthorexia because in there I do, she's kind of binging in there and she's, then she's Mm -hmm. on the treadmill a lot Mm -hmm. and then she loses a lot of weight, but then still binging. So yeah, I, I, I've been watching that and I have been thinking, Oh, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, in terms of treatment, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could go. I think it's important to know where you're at. Like, obviously, if if we get a call from a parent and the kiddo, their BMI is like 13, right? Or something really crazy and their medical is bad and their blood pressure is low and all these things. Well, you probably need like a residential or an inpatient stay. Um, And that is the highest level of care you would get for an eating disorder. Uh, Residential inpatient, we can do refeeding, which can be done through a PICC line, through an NG tube, right? That NG tube goes down your throat. The PICC line goes actually into your small intestine. Mm -hmm. And we give nourishment nutrients that way. Um, Or you sometimes they'll do like a, just a traditional IV. If there's nutrients or, you know, things are potassium's low, platelets are low. Um, so that's like the most severe cases. And that's how we would treat those. And, and also in that setting, you're doing intensive therapy, 10 hours a day, right? You're doing meal planning and prepping. You're meeting with the dietitian. You're meeting with your individual therapist. You're meeting with your psychiatrist. Is medication needed to mitigate this eating disorder symptomology? You're doing group therapy. You're talking with others. You're, I mean, you're doing meditation. There's so many things that go into just one day of treatment. And you're in that residential level for 30 to 45 days. And then we still, that's not over, right? Then we talk about stepping down. There's the partial hospitalization level that is a little bit lower. You get to go home in the night, but you're still getting treatment daily and meal support daily and all of the other group therapy and all of those components. And then lower level is intensive outpatient, which is nine hours of treatment a week. And that is primarily rooted in group therapy. That's for people and, you know, anyone, any age that maybe this is a newer development, right? Mm -hmm. Eating disorder, we're catching it early, or that patient has already gotten to a point where they're healthy enough to be in that lower level of care, um, but still rooted in mindfulness. Um, We use dialectical behavioral therapy, family-based therapy, and ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, Those are the traditional modalities of therapy that are treated for eating disorders. I mean, you can do a typical CBT too, right? Probably not like a solution focused therapist would probably be, wouldn't work with eating disorders because with eating disorders, like I mentioned earlier, it's not really finding a solution and you're cured, right? This is is ongoing. Um, And then there are, I like I've talked to families who they 
weren't really at the level for intensive outpatient, like nine hours a week, they were like, that might not be where we're at. We're still like new, or this is like just developing. In those cases, families will get their own outpatient team, right? So they'll okay. go through their insurance. You're going to then, you're hiring a dietitian to work with your child. You're hiring a therapist who specifies or is very versed in eating disorders. And you're also doing family-based therapy and maybe jumping into like a support group or two once a week. Um, there are free support groups for eating disorders online, both uh, anorexia, bulimia, and binge. Um, and so those are the different ways I've seen people be really successful with just an outpatient therapist who specializes um, and they meet with them once a week. And that is enough to help them work through their eating disorder. But then I've also seen people who really, really need to come and live on site with us for 30 to 45 days. You know, they really need that more intensive treatment. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, eating disorders and substance use disorders, they kind of mirror each other and their treatments are kind of mirrored, you know? So if you're a recovering addict or something, you're going to go to a rehab, right? And that's typically a 30 day program. It's kind of like that. Um, obviously what we're treating and talking about and doing is very different, um, but kind of similar in that way. So people can really get support and care at so many different levels. Our job, my job is to determine what level, right, okay. where you're at. Um, and it's, like I said before, it's not just based on, you know, BMI. It's not just based on height and weight or anything like that. We really do try to look at the full picture of symptomology um, because even someone who's really, really low body weight, they might not have these terrible symptomologies of like restricting and, and hateful body thoughts and body talk and hate of food. They don't actually need residential. They might be better suited in an IOP with maybe another hour of their outpatient session, right? Or something okay. like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it can be treated in all sorts of ways. I've also seen people do it on their own. You know what I mean? Like just by joining a Facebook group or knowing something's wrong and they just have their traditional therapist that maybe doesn't specify any eating disorders and have been able to like work through the, the disorder pattern. Um, you know, so it really depends on the person and then, you know, what that person probably needs would be determined by a, by a treatment team, right? Um, right. We're going to do a, an assessment or something like that, or maybe even a referral, right? If you're in the hospital for an eating disorder, like in a traditional ER for an eating disorder, well, then you're probably coming to us at a residential level. We're probably not, you're not discharging from the hospital because you've, you know, that unwell, and then you're going to intensive outpatient, right? Like that would right. make sense. So those are the different ways. Um, but also too, a lot of people don't even ever seek eating disorder treatment. So a lot of people like live with an eating disorder and they either don't recognize it or right. they don't care or it's not impacting them or they don't want to, you know, do anything. Um, but with eating disorder treatment, 60% of patients will make a full recovery, right? That's, that's a good number. 60% on average, that's the national average if someone seeks care. However, only about one in 10 or one in 11 people struggling with an active eating disorder actually seek that care. So that means that there are nine or 10 people who are never going to seek treatment and who are going to actively have an eating disorder, you know? So it's, it's tough, you know, 
because there there is a really like high rate of recovery and and health and help but not everybody's reaching out yeah yeah i agree and i think a lot too like you said barriers like insurance Mm -hmm. i think those are that's a barrier just in mental health overall when people are trying to seek any kind of service it could be a barrier of insurance and we've talked about that on the show before so um something i wanted to you mentioned about like diet culture so it has me thinking, Aaron, what can we kind of do to make us stop looking at food as good or bad? And I know I've done this in the past. I've dieted. I've lost weight. I got pregnant. I gained it back. I right. tried dieting again. I joined Weight Watchers, which was like, I wish I, and this is just my opinion. Weight Watchers can work for people. But for me, it made me look at food different. Like that's zero points. I could eat that. Oh, that's two points that no, well, this is 12 points. That's too high. It really did change the way I looked at food. So then I really, I got off of it after about five months, just because I noticed I was starting to really look at food just differently. And I would look at food as that's too high to eat. I'll just eat nothing but fruits and vegetables and just not enjoy life. But that's not realistic. Right. And it made me end up like we got in the pandemic and then I started binge eating and I was like, yeah, this is binge eating when you're like eating all day. And I was actually like thinking I would sit there and I'd be working. I'm like thinking like, is it time to eat yet? Is it time to eat yet? And I'm like, this is not normal. Like this is not, you know, and when I dieted in the past, which I didn't, people were like, you're dieting. I'm like, no, I'm just changing the way I eat. I want to eat healthier. I want to eat nutritious foods that don't make me feel bad. I want to feel good. Sugar makes me feel bad because I have PCOS and I notice sugar makes me bloated. So anyways, how can we really change like the way we look at foods as being good and bad and like, you know, just like thinking of things like I can't have that. And then when we do, when we restrict ourselves, we want it more and then we end up eating too much of it. How can we change that? Yeah. So I think you have to start First of all, you have to just get really comfortable and honest with yourself. And I think really living in, again, like I said before, living in reality, realistic expectations, realistic food plans, right? Like all of that. One way is to think of food, like you said, where like this is nourishing my body, right? So that. That's how I think about, I'll eat what I want. Like, I don't, do you know what I mean? I don't care. I've never had any issues with food besides like texture issues, but I've never had any like, oh, I have to lose weight or, oh, I, I'm eating too much. I don't, I never really had that problem. I've always really enjoyed food and I've always enjoyed eating healthy. And I also enjoyed junk food. And I also enjoyed McDonald's every now and again, you know, but it's about moderation and it's about just being like honest with yourself and what you want and what you need. And I think it's so much easier when you start really learning about the stuff that you're eating that is bad for you, learning about what that really does to your body, like in the long term. I think that helps me be like, oh, I'm not going to get a Big Mac every day, right? Because we know that those burger patties, they can live for like a hundred years and that's not right. Right. Like there's something in there that's like wrong and putting in my body, you know, so you're not going to have a Big Mac every day, but I'm not saying don't have the Big Mac. I'm just don't have it every day. Think about what you're putting your body in terms of how is 
this going to keep me alive longer? Right. I think that that's everyone's goal. Right. I think most people I talk to, right. Don't want to die. Right. I don't want to die. I want to live. I or don't want to die until I'm 80. Okay. Well, a good way to do that is to eat, you know, moderately healthy, put things in your body that words that are on the back of labels, you understand, do you know what I mean? Like look for stuff like that. If it says like there's 19 different kinds of gum in like the sauce, I would be like, "Mm, that's probably pretty toxic. You know, like just Mm -hmm. looking at that, thinking of food as fuel, thinking of food as longevity, and as opposed to thinking of food as either pleasurable or non-pleasurable. Don't restrict yourself you know, I only, I only blur splurge on Thanksgiving or, you know, like, don't, why are you doing that to yourself? Why, mm-hmm. you know, first of all, you're setting yourself up for failure because none of us can eat just clean and healthy and everything for 364 days. And then on Thanksgiving, we get to go crazy. You know, like, again, right. it's living in reality and it's knowing what you want. Like, what are your body goals? What, what is your health goals? Like, what foods do you like? What foods don't you like? And then checking in, like, why don't I like that? Why do I want to lose 10 pounds? You know, like checking in with the why, right? I think that's a really good place to start too. If you're thinking about dieting, or if you want to try one of these trends, keto, intermittent fasting, or, you know, all these things that are out there now, Weight Watchers, you know, all these different programs, and there might be benefit to all of them in some capacity, but I think it's so much better if maybe you like make your own, right? Maybe you take, excuse me, a philosophy from Weight Watchers that you enjoyed and a philosophy from intermittent fasting that you like, and, you know, something from another program you like, and then that's your, it's not a diet, right? That's your program. You made it up yourself. You're not following someone else. You're not only strictly listening to this. You're doing what feels good. And I think trying out different things. Like I tried to go gluten-free. That didn't work for me right? Because I like carbs. I like gluten. I, you know, I wanted that. So I tried it. I tried it for a week. That really wasn't me. I tried vegan. Listen, I love the animals. I'm all for the planet. And I am trying to get better about my carbon footprint, but I also like a cheeseburger, (laughs) you know? So it's like, you got to figure out what fits and then you got to figure out why you're doing it. Right. So if I'm trying to lose 10 pounds, well, who am I losing that 10 pounds for? What made me decide I knew, is it the swimsuit? Is it summer? Is it my husband? Is it myself? Am I feeling kind of bad about myself? And so I I think I'd feel better if I lost 10 pounds because at the end of the day, and I promise you, anyone listening on here, if you've lost five to 10 pounds, I guarantee you no one said anything. I guarantee you no one noticed, no one could really even tell because it's really not that much, right? It's not like significant. No one can tell if your abs are like a little tighter than they were the last time they saw you, you or your butts a little, no one can tell but you, you know, that's the thing. And it's not that your people in your life don't care about what you look like. They do, but they don't care enough for that to be something they're like, oh, wow, Aaron, you must've been doing squats. Like, no, like you're not, no one gives an F, like they really don't. And so whenever it comes to body image or weight or diet or whatever you're eating, it really has to be what you want. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, like, I'm again, I'm going to reiterate this, like no one cares. No one's noticing what you're doing. If you're 10 pounds overweight or you're a hundred pounds overweight, like I promise you probably most people don't care. And the right. people who do, or the people who make you feel bad, 
for how small you are or how large you are or call you fat or bully you, you have to also remember that's, that's their issue. That mm-hmm. also has nothing to do with you. If somebody comments on your picture, like, whoa, that crop top's a little too tight or something like that's, there's something they're dealing with. That's not what you're, that has nothing to do with you or your crop top. Live mm-hmm. your life, wear your crop top, let your rolls hang if they're hang, like, just do whatever feels good. And if you want to lose weight or you want to get healthier, I think that's when you know it's it's okay and it's probably rooted in something more beneficial than negative is that if it's about like your wellness, right? Your right. overall health and wellness. Like I want to get my cholesterol down or I want to get my blood pressure down or I want to just eat well so that I don't get cancer. I want to sleep well and I want to be there for my family. If you're having those conversations with yourself in your head, I feel like that's probably pretty positive. Mm -hmm. If you're having conversations in your head, like I want to fit into this by this, and I'm going to do this to get there. You might want to check in because now you're yo-yoing your diet. You're falling into diet culture and you're putting yourself at risk to fall into an eating disorder unbeknownstly to yourself. Like, I've never talked to anyone who has an eating disorder who said that that that's what they wanted. (laughs) No, that wasn't what they wanted. They didn't want the eating disorder. They wanted to lose the weight or they wanted, you know, whatever. And then that's how it became, you know, so I think you have to really check in and say, you know, what are my motives here? And am I real living in reality? And who is this benefiting? And you ask yourself those questions anytime you deal with anything in your life, you'd be better off, but especially with food or with how you feel about your body, you know, because we all have to just start loving ourselves right where we're at. Mm-hmm. We're, we're never going to like, I'm just, I keep saying this, like, you're never going to be those celebrities, right? You're never going to like, and why would you want to be? You are who you are, right? Do something that's going to make you more unique. You could still be famous, maybe, right? You could still become an influencer. You could still be all these things. Do you have to be a size two with a huge ass and huge boobs and big fake lips? Do you have to? No. Because I also know a lot of people who are really successful, famous, popular, million billionaires who are just average shows. And that's fine. So what's the problem? Like, well, we can all have our piece of the pie that we don't need these carbon copy, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You see the people on Instagram who look exactly like the celebrities, you know, they went to Miami and got all the surgeries. Like, what are you doing that for? You know, and if you're doing it for you and it feels good and you honestly love it and you feel it's not maladaptive, then kudos to you. Go get surgery. I don't care. I'll never judge you. But check in, because I think that's the problem. People don't check in with themselves mm-hmm. and they go on these rabbit holes trying to become or look or feel some sort of way. And it's not in diets and it's not in being skinny and it's not in looking like the next Kardashian. It's not in that. You really maybe need to quit your job. Maybe you need to leave your husband. Maybe you need to cut off your sister. And then you would be happier. You know, like I, it's interesting when I talk to patients, like, well, I don't know how I got here. I don't know how like, this eating disorder took over my life. Or, I don't know. And it's like, well, cause you were focusing on the wrong thing. 
right? You like right. hyper focus on I'm going to be in control of this when really what you needed to do was file for divorce, you know, and then you would have been and felt happier. Mm-hmm. So I always encourage people like, just be honest with yourself. You don't have to tell anyone else, but write it down in your journal or say it out loud in the mirror. Like I'm not happy because, or I want to change this because, and it, and you hear it out loud or you re- write it down and read it back to yourself. You're going to be checking in more and making sure you don't end up in a bad situation on accident, you know, and then something you have to deal with forever. You know, it's not, it's not like it's so easy to just, oh yeah, I had an eating disorder and now I don't, it's not, you know, it's something you're going to really struggle with. And as we mentioned before, it can be costly. You're, you could, you know, have to be out of work and it can kill you. Right. About one person dies every hour as a direct result of an eating disorder. One person an hour in America dies from an eating disorder. So like you have to take that, the weight of that and understand that you could be that person. Mm -hmm. It never starts that way. You know, it never starts like, oh yeah, I want to die. No, but you have to, if you're not checking in, you're not asking for help or seeking advice or confiding in someone you trust. These disorders and eating disorders in particular can spiral so quickly that you just don't even know, right? What even right. So that's why I say like, just be checking in. And this is for parents who are listening on this call. This is for patients who might be thinking they're noticing something. This is for, you know, anyone listening that they think a loved one might be struggling. Like these are the things you have to know and look for and be supportive of, and then out for help. If you're at a point where just kind of figuring it out and getting back on track yourself isn't feasible. Right. So you just, and being honest about that and, and also not being ashamed. Um, That's like a big thing that I talk with clients about all the time is like, you don't have to be ashamed of your body. You don't have to be ashamed of your behaviors, right? Like it's not you, it's the eating disorder, you know, like separating the two and understanding that like, you're still a good person. You're still lovable. You're still worthy. The eating disorder is just in control right now. You have to take the wheel back. You know, I think that's really important. And for anyone listening that has a family member that's struggling, like being there, being open, being gentle and being non-judgmental, right? I think that mm-hmm. is the best way to support someone who's going through an eating disorder. And also if somebody themselves has an eating disorder, I think you have to be really gracious with yourself and it's easier said than done. I know it takes a lot more than just, oh yeah, I'm, yeah I love myself, <laughs> you know, meditate for five minutes. I get it. It <laughs> takes a lot more work than that. Right. But what I was saying is just check in and, you know, remind yourself, like, I'm not, I'm not a bad person. I'm not trying to hurt those around me. I'm not trying to hurt myself. I'm unwell right now. So just think of it like when you get sick with a cold, you know, you're not mad at yourself for the cold. You, you get better. You, you take care of yourself. You drink the water, you take the NyQuil, you get to sleep and then it goes away. You know, that is the same thing. It's like, don't be mad at yourself for an, for an eating disorder, or for mental illness, but then do the things to get better. Right. Right. Like you don't have to blame yourself. It's not your fault. Like we're all susceptible. 
Right. And I'm glad that you said that, Aaron, because it made me think about something I read, like, like with physical health and mental health, you can't see mental health, right? Like you cannot, but you could see when someone has a cut or a burn, what do you do? You treat it just Mm -hmm. because you can't see mental health. Doesn't mean that something's not there. If someone says they're unwell, believe them because they're unwell. And if they feel vulnerable enough and comfortable enough to share that with you, take them seriously. Don't you want to tell someone with a broken arm, not to go to the hospital. Exactly. (laughs) You would take them to the hospital. If someone tells you I'm feeling this way, I need help. Find a way to support them. If you can't support them, find someone who, you know, you feel like can support them. Yeah. And I think that's the most important part in remembering about like, you know, being there for others and helping each other. Like you're not alone. There right. are people who want to help you and see you get better. So I'm really glad you said that. Cause I made yeah. me really think about that. Cause we, we, and I've said this time and time again, we need each other, you know, and if you can confide in one person and that person can reach out and give you help or find someone who can give you help, that's really important. And, you know, it, it makes a world of difference. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's such a good, place to, to kind of think about it from is, yeah, if you broke your arm, you're not just going to like stay on the couch with a broken arm, you know, the ambulance is going to come, right. Or you're going to go and you're going to get a cast and then you're going to have to heal. And maybe you have to do some arm rehab, right. After you get the cast off, like it's a process, you know, I, I had knee surgery 10 years ago. I'm still struggling with it. You know, it's like, if it's physical, if it's mental, like it, yeah, it might take time. It's not going to just be overnight. I'm better. This pill isn't going to magically fix me. But it's like, but you still have to take care of your brain the same way you take care of every other part of your body. You know, if something's wrong, you go talk to someone about it. You go, or you do, do go get medication, right? Or you do confide in a loved one and say, man, I'm struggling or, you know, lean into what's available and around. And it, yeah, like you said, if you don't know the right answer, direct them to maybe someone who does, or it's always good to do some research online, not too crazy, but you know, don't go down the rabbit hole WebMD. But you know, if you're looking for support, or you're looking for a little more information, you can go to alliance for eating disorders.com. Um, you can go on eating recovery center. That's my facilities website. We offer free support groups and things like that, that you like register with your email. It's all community based. It's run by therapists, Alliance for eating disorders, the same thing. Um, and then there's obviously NAMI, um, which is always a great like resource for like more crisis. But even if you're dealing with an eating disorder, you can call them too, and they can direct you. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can always go through insurance if you have good coverage or you have good insurance. Most Medicaid Medicare policies aren't going to cover eating disorder treatment and most facilities probably won't accept them. Um, Government funded insurance just is tough. They don't pay like the rates of most places. Uh, But yeah, calling your insurance is a great way to go. Psychology today, if you're looking for an outpatient provider or patient dietitian, um, you don't necessarily need a therapist that specifies in eating disorders, even just working with a dietitian who's versed in eating disorders could be really helpful. Um, you can find those people on, on psychology today too. And so there's, there's resources, free ones for, if you're not sure. And then there's resources like mine, where I work, where we're like a full-blown program, you know, full-blown treatment center. Um, 
And so, you know, there's, there's options, there's help. I, I mentioned earlier in, in the pod that there was other facilities outside of mine, right? That treat eating disorders in case somebody is listening and they're from a location where we don't have one and they're not willing to travel. Maybe the other places I mentioned have one in your city. Um, but it's, it's good to, to know that and have those resources for you or a loved one, you know, mm-hmm. or sharing this podcast with a loved one who maybe you think is struggling, but they haven't said anything, you know, there's little ways to be supportive or, or be resourceful for someone you care about or for yourself without directly sitting down and saying, Hey, what's going on? You know, (laughs) are you okay? You just share this little podcast with them and say, Hey, thought this was an interesting one, you know, and maybe it resonates with them and maybe they never say anything about it, but maybe they use some of our resources that we've given today, you know? So, right. I think that those are all really great resources and places for people to go if they think they need that. Yeah. As I was doing some research, I found NETA. um, And the number for that is 800-931-2237. They also accept text messaging. So, you know, if you don't feel comfortable calling and talking, maybe you can text and, you know, just get some support. Um, I think support is the most important thing. I, I really feel like it's it's great that people want to be independent and do things on their own, but sometimes it's just feels good to have somebody there, you know, with you on whatever journey you are like, and, and I'm hardheaded too. Sometimes I I have to, I say it a lot because I have to remind myself of it too, but I, you know, you're not alone. There's people who want to help you and want to see you thrive and succeed and be the best version of yourself that you can be. And so Aaron, is there anything else that you would like to share? No, I think that we covered a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, like I said, if anybody, you know, is struggling, you can always go on our website, eatingrecoverycenter.com. We do assessments. So maybe if you're a parent or a patient, you're unsure, you're unsure if you even need our services, we could always do that assessment and make our recommendation. And maybe that recommendation is outpatient, or maybe that recommendation is to come to us. Um, And then utilizing the other resources I mentioned that are like the free ones or support groups. I think those are super, super fun. Um, And I don't mean fun, like getting treatment is fun, but I mean, it's fun because it's, it's, well, one, it's free, it's super accessible, it's super easy, it's run by professionals, and there's other people in the group that are wanting the same, you know, support and care, and it, and it feels good to be in that and kind of build a community for yourself or a loved one, you know, if they're struggling to have that, like, I always say that that's always so beneficial for treatment when other people can recognize that others are going through the same thing they are, right? It's that like right. removing that isolation, removing that mask of I'm all by myself and no one cares and no one gets it. Cause guess what? Sorry, you're wrong. A lot of people get it and a lot of people care and a lot of people are going through it just like you are, but you just didn't know. Cause you never jumped into that free support group, you know? So I think those are, those are some really great places. And if people have questions, you know, when you like share it on Instagram, they can write in the little comment box. I can respond um, with any like more detailed questions or DM me too on Instagram. And if you have anything like a family member you're unsure of, or you're looking for support, you can always reach out and I can, you know, answer any questions that might need to be filtered my way. Otherwise, like I said, the internet is a really great resource. 
Yeah. What's your Instagram handle? Just in case um, listeners want to access you. Yeah. My Instagram handle is, I actually recently changed it. It's called (laughs) now it's your best friends therapist. All right. Well, Aaron, thank you for sharing very good information with us. It was very helpful for me. Um, a lot of the stuff I didn't know. So it was interesting for me. That's why I was very quiet this episode. I was learning with you guys. And uh, yeah, thank you for sharing. Thank you for coming on. I'm really excited to see all the things that you're going to do. Um, so thank you. (laughs) Yeah. I love, listen, I love coming on mind. If we chat, I think it's (laughs) super, it's just like a really great pod and it's it's so informative every episode you do is always like something that you can learn from even if you like the one I listened to a couple weeks ago I just listened like the first 30 minutes because I was on the go and then I listened the next 30 minutes I was like oh I loved it like I love (laughs) your interview style and you do you really bring a lot of great content and great guests on for people for all different stuff which is so great like people need to know about all there's so many mental illnesses there's so many things that we could chat about you know that yes that relate to that field and I'm sure when people hear this this episode they're gonna be like they didn't even know like holy crap and like I said I'm just giving you guys like the bare (laughs) minimum we could talk about this this could have been a four hour long podcast if we really wanted to dive in to each disorder and the roots and causes and symptomology I mean there's so many and so much just with eating disorders so I'm glad to give just like a general chat about it but yeah there's a ton people can learn about and hopefully this makes people more interested and they yeah. can go and do their own research there's tons of research online there's some really great documentaries on Netflix and on Hulu and there's some Instagram pages and Facebook groups that are super super helpful too of people who've recovered of parents who are struggling their kids are going through like there's so much so I hope that people are able to access that now and know, because a lot of times people don't even know that there's all these options. Yeah. I mean, like I said, just from talking with you about this stuff, some of the stuff I wasn't even aware of. So it was really informative for me. And again, to our listeners, this episode was meant to be informative for you all. And, you know, if you found anything triggering, I really hope that you didn't reach this far in the point you gave yourself a break. You know, it's really important to know things, but if it upsets you in some way or disrupts your well-being, that's not what the intention of the episode is for. So I thank you guys for listening. Um, follow me and we can chat more at Mind If We Chat on Instagram and Facebook. And stay tuned next week as I have, I'm not going to name my guests for next week because they're very Ooh. special guests. They're very familiar. <laughs> uh, we'll be chatting about marijuana and mental health as we continue to talk and bring awareness to mental health for the month of May. So thank you guys for listening. And as always, I hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll chat with you next time. Bye. I am not a mental health professional. I'm an individual who is passionate about mental health and topics related to mental health. Research has been done on these topics and I'm sharing my own personal experience. All conversation and information exchange are intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Any information shared should not be used as medical advice or to self-diagnose. If you believe you are experiencing an emergency, please talk to your primary physician or call 911.